All right, man. Welcome to the intro for Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast episode. Uh, where are we? Sixty-seven. Uh, Jason and I are going to be covering the Brotherhood of Death, also known as Skull and Bones, and uh, we're even going to track them back to the East India Company. For those who are wondering what the East India Company is, I suppose when I was in my twenties, I read the books by uh, Clavel, Shogun, Noble House, Taipan. Um, that's all about the East India Company in an offhand way. Uh, you may remember the supposed history where Britain goes into China on the Opium Wars. That is involving the East India Company. The argument could be made that the East India Company is the original maritime law corporation that set the stage for the modern times we live. As a matter of fact, anyone who's seen Pirates of the Caribbean, um, you're looking at direct references all the way through. It's beyond a trilogy. I don't know what it is now. Um, between the royal crown and piracy and the crossover, even at one point the crown opening a note where it has actually the British or the uh, East India Company logo on it. Uh, basically rubbing in your face that these guys are the original gangsters. These guys are the original Pirates Incorporated, and it flows right up into Skull and Bones, which is at a major university in this country called Yale. Um, to put a fine point on it, you know, they uh, Disney has put a song in your face for years that basically is the pirates telling you who they are. Words have meaning. Um so many of us have heard this, but I doubt if many have thought about it. So I will read you the words, and I will leave out the drink-up-me, Hardy's yo-ho that's repeated over and over. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot. Drink-up-me, Hardy's yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. Then it goes on to say, we extort, we pilfer, we filch, we sack. We maraud, embezzle, and even hijack goes on to say we kindle and char and flame and ignite we burn up the city we're really a fright we're rascals scoundrels villains and knaves we're devils and black sheeps we're really bad eggs goes on to say we're beggars and blighters and ne'er-do-well cads a but we're loved by our mommies and dads drink up me hearties yo-ho words have meaning and this is really the modern definition for piracy um, as is echoed in Pirates of the Caribbean, which was put out by Disney, which is basically showing you the relationship between the British Crown and the, the East India Company pirates, um, among other things. And I suppose both sides of this could be argued because so much of our history is up for grabs at this point. But there it is, man. And maybe I should have opened up this episode by saying, Ahoy! Um, funny thing about the word Ahoy, did you know that originally that was the intended word for answering a telephone. Sorry about that, got cut off. But what I was about to say was that, you know, the word ahoy to answer a telephone, again, just demonstrating the maritime ideas which have creeped onto land and have so much to do with our everyday lives, particularly if you want to talk about law particularly if you want to talk about corporations. It's all encoded, of course, and hidden under the surface, as a bad pun. But there it is. <clears throat> this episode is very interesting in that Jason did a lot of research. At one point, he's going to read a uh, an article that was published in Iconoclast, which is basically, in my view, again, these hidden hands temporarily tipping their hand forward so that we can see what's going on and then hiding it again. It was only published once. It was published in uh, a publication called Iconoclast. And of course, I break down that word because 
as we cover again in this episode, words have meaning. But the next time you're out having a good time at Disneyland and you're in the Pirates of the Caribbean or you're sitting in front of your boob tube and you're watching one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, this is what you're looking at. You're looking at the roots of piracy being rubbed in your face. These same pirates run pretty much all banking corporation law. Um, I mean, you point to it and and there's influence there. And I know a lot of people would argue that, but I'm not going to make any apology here. It is what it is. Um, Simply the idea of having the Jolly Roger flying over a secret society at Yale should tell us all something. But anyhow, let's jump into episode 67 covering Skull and Bones or the Brotherhood of Death with Jason. Here we go, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 67. Uh, Jason and I are going to go a little off the beaten path today and talk about the Skull and Bones secret society out of Yale. Um, Just another one of the strange things we have here in the United States where major important players in our life all belong to this organization, apparently. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit on the tale of our last episode, which was about free speech and expression and how corporations are coming to control our free speech. And to put a fine point on that, um, and actually, maybe I'll welcome you first, Jason. Welcome, Jason. Well, hello, Crow. So, Jason, you may have noticed on YouTube um, that the publicly visible numbers have been pretty low. But in my Google Analytics account, I think I've had the worst maybe month run now um, on Crow 777 Radio. At one point, we were getting something like 5,000 visits a day, um, and now we're down to under 500. Um, Even on the upload day, we barely cleared 1,000. And um, I'm getting reports from all over from people that uh, things like the lunar wave are not very searchable. People have told me that they have tried to view lunar wave clips and gotten the message blocked worldwide. Um, And to top it off, all of my Crow 777 radio email is now tagged as spam. And in some other countries, the word used is scam. Um, And I don't spam anybody for any reason. The only reason that I use that email is to respond to someone contacting me or to let my subscriber base know that I have put up a new clip. Um, What do you think about all that, man? It's just it's kind of an underhanded behind the scenes way of controlling information is what it appears. I'm going to go with the old phrase, where there's smoke, there's fire. They they don't like what we're doing. I mean, that's the bottom line. They didn't like all the things you'd done before, and they probably don't like all the stuff that we've been doing together since. You know, it's it's we take a pretty measured approach. It's very rare when, you know, we're up in someone's face or, you know, kicking someone in the crotch purposely. Um, we're trying to state things as reasonably as we can. Some of the things we talk about are just plain and simple, unreasonable. But um, not only that, on my Crow 777 radio site, I have had endless reports over the last two weeks at least of people trying to hit my homepage and getting 404 errors and 403 errors. I've gone back and forth endlessly over this. I even have a subscriber whose IP was blocked uh, by the, the service provider of all things. I mean, we're getting to a critical point here, aren't we? Yeah, and it sounds like they're they're doing what will we call it, like underhanded direct attacks. Not They're not being so blatant about it that they're doing DNS attacks, but doing things on a, a sm- small level that's, but multiple times over, so it's having a cumulative effect. Right. See, the problem is, is, you know, I've been running over a year here, 
and so I can see how traffic has gone both on YouTube and on Crow Triple Seven Radio. And I can see exactly where the cut point is, where things begin to fall. Um, but it's a hard thing to prove that you're being screwed with. I mean, things like your email being tagged as a scam or spam, uh, that's just ridiculous on the face of it. Suppose you sent a letter and the post office took it upon itself to write scam on the envelope that it was delivering. I mean, that's basically what's going on here. Um, you know, we've, we've pulled into the internet age and all these things that we accept as normal, man, we need to reframe our minds because it really is no different than, than a letter going out to your mailbox and having the post office label it in some unhelpful way. That's exactly what's being done. The real issue at hand here is I've never spammed anybody for anything. I don't do that. But anyhow, we've got a heck of a list to get through. You want to add anything to the uh, woes of corporate censorship before we move on here? Yeah, actually, I do, because I I've been dealing with my own bit of insanity here in Baton Rouge. The, um, the AT&T service has been out, that the Internet service, let me make myself clear. It's now day 10, and I've literally been on the phone for hours at a time getting transferred around and getting literally zero information just that there's an outage i've had multiple tech calls coming to my house canceled but i don't even need that because there's nothing wrong with the ones in my house there's nothing wrong with any of the lines it's it's exterior and uh, the only reason i've gotten anywhere at all is because i've i've literally pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to find out that there's some sort of power outage here and that's still all I can find out. And I even went into an AT&T store to confront them and say, what is going on? And um, they've got these corporate conglomerates, these giant corporations, so compartmentalized and like like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing because even when I got to somebody who's a problem fixer on the phone, she kept getting sent back to the Philippines to the call center <laughs> and she was getting after an hour and a half she was so frustrated she was actually a really nice lady that uh you know that this is what they're doing man so it, it's it's so obvious when you you have one of these problems to see how they, they're going to do things to mess with us because they've got everything so chopped up and disconnected internally that they can do something and no one else would be the wiser for it because here i am on my cell phone's hotspot again and um Thank goodness I have a good signal here that we can record shows on. Yeah, you know, this this is just symptoms of what's been going on, you know, a few decades ago in America. If your phone went out, it was expected that those dudes got on it and your phone line came up in a reasonable amount of time. And it happened most of the time, the vast majority of the time. What we see now is system failures, power outages, all these things cropping up all over the country and it's a bit like an indoctrination to get used to the fact that we're supposed to buy into America circling the drain. And I don't even know why I say America. I guess I'll hold on to that word, even though I know it doesn't exist in the way we think it does. My point is um, it's part of the larger scope of things. You know, they've already kind of moved all the manufacturing out of this country over to China and other places. Um, they've gutted just about everything when Detroit fell and Flint, Michigan, where all the cars were made. That's really where I marked the start point of the plan to really demote America. But I think what you're seeing down there in Baton Rouge is just more of the slow boiling of the water to get people used to the idea 
that we're not going to be what we once were. Um, and it's a sad story, but it seems that's where we're headed. And, you know, all this social engineering seems to go right along with it because we've talked about things like this before. Just what you were saying about Detroit and all that, I know I've said at least two or three times that it's even obvious with the way they steer our culture what they're doing right. to us because right. the 60s was the end of the happy, colorful, wonderful Americana and then just within the first few years of the 1970s, everything changes and I've still been looking into that and I pointed it out to people and once I actually point my finger at it and go, look, does that thing from three years after the original Star Trek look better than the original Star Trek? And the answer is no, it's grittier, darker... You know, and then you have the original Star Trek that's colorful and bright and, and looks good, sounds good. They intentionally have steered things to reflect what it is they're going to do to us. And, of course, the 1970s right. is when we had all these plant closings and, you know, they started getting all of our industry out of the United States just as far as what they did to us. And I, I don't even know what they did to other Western nations, but I'm sure it was something similar. And this is what we see. Well, there's no getting away from the social programming. It's funny, on television, um, I record a couple things here and there to look. There's one program on PBS or somewhere, I forget where it's running, called America in Color. The ironic thing is, is they've now colorized footage from the supposed 20s and 30s. It looks better than the JFK 60s footage, which is all grainy. Um, you can see the construct of it, but they were also not too long ago running a program called 80, the 80s, the decade that made us. And I began to consider this, and in, in a way, it is the decade that made them. If we consider like the Rodney King um, into the O.J. Simpson thing, when the whole of American culture changed, all of a sudden every station is running this ridiculous slow-speed stage chase of supposed O.J. Simpson. Um, the Kardashian father is involved in all this, and you know it, it was a a vast departure of what had been. All of a sudden, there were network television in courtrooms that had become open entertainment. But in fact, the the uh, the programming that we see from media um, is absolutely feeding into this idea. Like I just saw a pizza commercial where they're using the word bestest. When's the last time you heard someone who wasn't five years old use the word bestest? Look at shows like The Big Bang Theory, where the best and the brightest among us, PhDs with their doctorates, are interested in toys and comic books. It is the lowering of of a world mind, and it is a lowering of expectation, an attack on the way things used to be. But the problem is, is the animal farm ideas are being brought to bear here. And in the same way, America colorized being blasted out to a million homes right now is rewriting history. The people watching it can't quite remember what happened. Some of them don't even have a prayer because they weren't born yet. But yeah, man, we're in dire straits until people begin to understand that media, movies, news, all of it exists for one reason, for social programming. And for people listening who can't accept that, I would point out before there was ever a movie theater, before there was ever a television set, before there was ever a radio in this world, the kings and queens or whoever the rulers were absolutely knew the power of messaging to the point where if you look up the word actor, just talking about theater here, no television, no radio, the word actor, its Greek roots of the word actor goes back to the word hypocrite. It is said that they could not be buried in public cemeteries because hypocrites were known to be two-faced. They could not hold public office 
because you see an actor could be one person one minute and another person another minute. Duplicitous, not fit to hold the role of, as in the case of Ronald Reagan or Arnold Schwarzenegger, an important public office. But to top it off, women weren't even allowed in the acting profession. You want to know why? Because the men knew the duplicitous nature of what was going on. Take Japanese kabuki, all the men playing the female roles up to a certain point. So people need to catch on what media is for. It is not to entertain you. And while it does do that, the main purpose is to socially program us all. But anyhow, Jason, we got a heck of a list. And if we don't jump in here pretty quick, we're going to be scrambling to get through it. Absolutely. So let's talk about the reality of Skull and Bones. And the reason I wanted to do this was I wanted more information to present to people about what goes on behind the scenes and how these elite power structures maintain their control generation after generation. And looking at this fraternal-slash-secret society at a, an Ivy League school showed me just how they're doing it. It's it's actually not too tough. All these mo- people, these old money uh, people are, are holding on to their money and just passing it from the torch from one to the next. Well, when you said you wanted to do this, you told me this a while ago, and this isn't really my main bailiwick, but when we last talked about it after the last episode, I said, okay, let's do it. But before you jump into the list, I think you're going to open up stating that you found something like 19 secret societies. I actually found 41 secret societies associated with Yale. And I'm just going to run down some number values of a couple of the secret societies that are reported. They're reported values, which I think is probably spurious information, but I'll do it right before you jump in here. The St. Elmo Society is worth 90K. The Berzelius is a million point nine. And apparently they're called Bulla Bulla 2 also, licensed under a public domain via commons, whatever that means. Skull and Bones, which we will be talking at length about, is reported to be worth $4.1 million. The Elizabethan Club, set up incidentally in 1911. Oh, 1911, let me count the ways. The Elizabethan Club is worth $4.2 mil. The Book and Snake Club, or whatever you want to call it, $5.6 mil. Wolf's Head, $6.8 mil. Scroll and key, 10.7 mil, and that was the highest value listed for any of the supposed 41 secret societies, but I suspect the 19 that you found are the main players. Anyhow, I'll kick it to you, and let's jump into this thing. Absolutely. So Skull and Bones is indeed one of 19 secret societies that I found listed at Yale University, and it's the oldest, although Yale considers itself to have 40 or so clubs and societies in total. So there's your your number that you found. There it is. Yep. So uh, others of the secret societies besides Skull and Bones are named the Linonian Society, Brothers in Unity, Spade and Grave, St. Elmo, Aurelian Honor Society, Torch Honor Society, Nathan Hale, Desmos, Manuscript Society, Mace and Chain, Myth and Sword, Shabtai, Cup and Crown, Scroll and Key, Book and Snake, Wolf's Head, Eliyahu, and Berzelius. <laughs> <laughs> makes you wonder if there's a uh, Dungeons and Dragons club. I mean, look at the names of these does, places, right? It does, man. <laughs> it's, it's a bit much. But anyhow, go ahead. Keep pumping through. We need to get in a ways here. So it, trying to look into this is interesting because the members of Skull and Bones over the years have seemingly 
intentionally allowed a series of conflicting mythologies to surround the creation of their order. Now, some so- stories say it is uh, its own unique creation, and another says it may have been an outgrowth of Freemasonry in one way, shape, or form. But the most likely explanation is this big thing I'm about to get into with a bunch of folks from the colonial era and then pre-revolutionary war and then, of course, after the Revolutionary War. So I've said this before on episodes where we've dealt with Freemasonry and other supposed secret societies. Um, It is my view um, that none of these kind of secret fraternal organizations are doing much different than the one next to it. But I would further say that most of these things in the West appear to me to be watered down versions of what Eastern masters um, kept alive. Uh, And it's hard to know how that may have happened. But I've even gone so far as to surmise that the Eastern masters recognized what the white people were doing with the information and purposely limited um, what places like Freemasonry actually got their hands on. Um, So it looks to me like maybe places like Freemasonry certainly do have some secrets and certainly it's encoding the more old natural ways, alchemy ideas, these kinds of things, but it's not the whole enchilada. And I suspect the reason it's not the whole enchilada is because the Eastern masters recognized its misuse. And that's just kind of an educated guess on my part. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Well, before I get into the very, very specifics of all this, the people behind starting Skull and Bones and all that had a lot of money. So if they wanted information or they wanted to set things in a certain direction, they had the money, power and influence to do it. So, and as I start reading through the the information that I found, you're going to see just how much influence they would have had. Right. Um, The point I was making previous is is if you research way back and try to get into the Eastern mindsets of the supposed, I don't know what what the allegory would be, the yogi on the mountaintop who spent his whole life, you know, detached from society trying to figure out a deeper meaning to life. A lot of those teachings were said to be mouth to ear. Um, It is further said that the traditions were not passed on until people were proven worthy. I've even read accounts where people would be in their 20s or 30s before they were allowed to move forward, um, spending a good part of their lifetime proving their worthiness to go down this road. And I think there's something to it because if you look at the Eastern philosophies, a lot of it has to do with altruism with the benefit of all living beings. And when we come down to Freemasonry and other secret societies we can look at, Skull and Bones is no different. These are not altruistic societies, and I think you're about to cover that. So I'll let you get into the Brotherhood of Death here. So Skull and Bones is an undergraduate senior secret society at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. It is the oldest senior class landed society, supposedly founded in 1832, although I had seen the years 1830 and 1833 listed as well, but those don't add up with the other information that I found. So those on the inside of the society call it the Order. It is also known as Chapter 322 of a German secret society, possibly linked to the original Bavarian Illuminati. The society is known informally as Bones, and members are known as Bonesmen. For legal purposes, it was incorporated as the Russell Trust in 1856. At one point, on and off through its history, it was known as the Brotherhood of Death. 
<laughs> the last couple of lines there, the bonesmen. So what? They're all going to go get important jobs and spend the rest of their life boning society um, to make a bad pun. <laughs> but, you know, I would ask the Russell Trust, why the hell should we trust Russell? Um, but really to top it off, it's the brotherhood of death idea. And this really plays into the alchemy thing that we've been talking about. The more that I research alchemy and each week that goes by, I try to have enough time to get back over to keep going down the alchemical path. Um, what we find is the idea of being detached from natural systems shortens a lifespan. Even things like, you know, the supposed Ponce de Leon fountain of youth, that's actually an alchemical idea, the uh, the aqua verite, uh, the water of life, which is kind of encoded and allegorized in the, bottle, in the Bible. But here you have these people flat out calling themselves the Brotherhood of Death. And I would suggest that these are members of the movers and shakers who do the social programming, who allow this kind of thing to go on. And I think one of the main goals of people and groups like this is to literally shorten lifespans of the people they rule over. Um, but that's just me. It's a tough thing to prove. Anyhow, back to you. Yeah, it is a tough thing to prove. So let's do a bit on Yale University itself. It's an American private Ivy League research university located in New Haven, Connecticut. It was founded in 1701 and is the third oldest institution of higher education in the United States. It is one of nine colonial colleges chartered before the American Revolution. And just to add some context here, when we did the weaponization and the attack on the young generation of the 60s, we demonstrated that the CIA had co-opted. This was one of the listed universities of the 70 or 80 that the CIA had co-opted. Anyhow, go ahead. Yes, and the thing we're going to see as we go through this is that Yale pretty much always had ties to the intelligence community, which just grew and grew as time went by. So the original university was originally chartered by the English Connecticut Colony, which was known at first as the River Colony. This was to go on to become the state of Connecticut. It was organized on March 6, 1636, for a Puritan congregation. First established as the Collegiate School in Saybrook County to educate congregational ministers, it moved to New Haven in 1716 and shortly thereafter was renamed Yale College in recognition of a gift for the British East India Company governor, Elihu Yale. In the beginning, it was restricted to teaching theology and sacred languages, but expanded the curriculum to include humanities and sciences throughout the 1700s. In the 1800s, the school introduced graduate and professional instruction and awarded its first doctorate in 1861. It was organized into a university in 1887. After 1890, there was rapid expansion of the faculty and student numbers, and this led to massive growth of the physical campus as well as, as its scientific research endeavors. Boy, a couple of key points here, Jason. Let's start with the organization date of March 6, 1636. Um, of course, March 6 is approaching the vernal equinox, and we've talked at length on this show um, about the importance of having to start alchemical processes near the spring equinox or the vernal equinox. But what's even more is they're founding a Puritan congregation in 1636, which, of, co of course, encodes 666. But just to keep it brief so you can keep moving, uh, you introduced a very big deal here in the East India Company. Um, the East India Company of Britain, of British fame that was in China and other places, is probably the first 
example of what corporations are going to become in this world. Not only are they maritime organizations, not only are they allowed by the British crown to form their own militias and militaries and and to govern over other provinces, um, the East India Company really seems to be where the woes of the modern age begin, in my view. Anyhow, back to you. I would liken the East India Company, after looking into all this again, and I'd looked into it before, uh, kind of like the Google of today, where they've they they pretty much controlled the narrative for the most part, on, you know, all over the world, and steered yeah. things in in whatever direction they damn well please because they had the money, power, and influence once again to do it. Well, what you have here is seafaring ships with captains, um, you know, so there's your maritime law going into places and basically taking them over. And they're doing it under the rules of incorporation, which appear to be being fleshed out um, in the first meaningful tradition here in the East India Company. You know, when I was in my 20s, um, I, I liked Clavel, the author Clavel, because he wrote the book Shogun. And I was into Japan at the time. That was before I'd ever been in the Marine Corps and gone to Japan, um, don't feel feel the same way about Clavel now that I did then. But anyhow, in the Clavel series, there's the whole seafaring tradition and the founding of Hong Kong and the opium wars in uh, China, which is all an exact allegory to the East India Company. And of course, I don't know where you're going to get to in the list, but this has an exact mirror up in Canada with, I think it's called the Northwest Company, um, which is a similar thing going on. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing. Well, and this is a direct mirror to the same nonsense that they do today, you know, with, the, with right. the, uh, the opium coming out of the Middle East and all that. Opium and heroin is what they turn the opium into. So the same crap that they were doing in the 16 and 1700s, which is about as far as I feel we can go back and still have fairly accurate records of what was going on. Good point. That's a good point, Jason, because we may be looking at people who played an integral role in jacking up the historical timeline. Um, what, what's kind of ironic with the East India Company is they make no no attempt to hide the fact that they basically drugged out China with opium. Even when China stood up to say, we don't want your dope here, um, they said, screw you. And they bombed them and fought them and basically forced it down their throats. At the same time, they were stealing what was going to become the most popular drink in the world, tea. Um, it, it's 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 almost beyond the merit of common sense to show how openly they they show the sinful nature of what they were up to. And yet at the same time, we may be looking at the point in the timeline where history is really beginning to be rewritten and swept away. So there it is. Well, because let's not forget who was in control of, of these companies. You know, East India is one of them, but right. there are others, as you mentioned. And it's, again, it all ties back to these elite families. And what we're getting into is Skull and Bones and Yale University. It's just all the same stuff, man. Like, this is That's why right. I wanted to do this. You can Once you start looking at it, the spider's web, you know, you go closer and closer into the center and you see the same little group of bastards doing the same stuff to everybody. Well, what's funny is, as I was doing some of the research, um, I found actual stupid articles written by places. I don't know if it was NBC, some some major false news place like that, um, stating that Yale had changed its rules because so many students at Yale felt left out because they couldn't get tapped into a secret society. They were going to change the rules so that everyone could get into some secret society or another. I mean, it's all just ludicrous ridiculousness. And by the time you start naming the people who came through these organizations and the positions they held, uh, it begins to draw a picture. And it really, really shows 
as we get into this, the reach of those who were ruling through corporation and through maritime law. Yeah. Now, it seems that all of these fraternities slash secret societies seem to serve as a recruiting ground for young men who are destined for careers in such places as government, law, finance, or some other influential sector of Western life. But to call them fraternities is kind of a, a joke. They, there's nothing about them that you can compare to other colleges and universities' fraternities, which is usually just an excuse to have big old parties. Uh, as a matter of fact, you're not allowed to have alcohol in the tomb of Skull and Bones, which is their meeting place. So that just tells you how serious they take their meetings. Well, I, I would point out, you know, we know George Bush was through Skull and Bones. So we have one of two options here. Either the man that we think is George Bush, whoever he may be, is one hell of an actor or he's basically a dimwit. There's two options there. If we say he's a good actor, well, then you're looking at one hell of an operative on the world stage. If you choose, on the other hand, to say he's kind of a dimwit, it goes to show the message control around these places. And the idea that people could go up and pledge one of these places to get in, I mean, you're going to go through the list. There's too many mover and shaker families who had their kids inserted here. And, you know, I forget what the, the number, you know, the stated value of the thing is four million something. How many universities have clubs? that you have neighbors that are members of that are worth four million something. And that's probably a ridiculously stated number in the first place. Anyhow, don't let me sidetrack here, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Now, George Bush Jr., W., may not have been the brightest and the best, but it didn't matter because he was part of a family that was completely connected and integrated into all this. So he was just yet another cog in the wheel to keep this whole thing going. He doesn't necessarily have to be a mega genius or the best speaker, the best of anything. They just, he, he was there at the right time and they used him. In my view, it's no different than watching a pizza commercial that uses words like bestest. And it's not just that one pizza commercial. I witnessed, I think, five recently where the lowering and dissembling of language is going on actively where 10, 15 years from now, Lord only knows. It's a bit like the rap community um, thinking it's cool to say the word teeth as teeth. And, you know, that's not a racist jab. It's it's a very simple thing. Like here on the East Coast, R's get dropped from words. And I was talking with someone the other day, um, you know, asking an honest question. When children are in school, there's, there's a road that I'm aware of a ways from me called Bulgar Marsh. Here they pronounce it as Bulgamash. Okay, that's how everyone around here says it. As a matter of fact, someone from the West Coast who wants to pronounce it right, it's a real mouthful. Bulgar Marsh is what you would have to say. And I was talking with someone saying, well, how do the kids in school handle that when they're sounding out a word, learning how to spell? And that's the whole idea behind what we're talking. But you see, the presidency of George W. Bush is no different than that stupid pizza commercial pushing the word bestest. It is the lowering of the standard of what a human being can be. To accept a dimwit, whether he's acting or whether that's actually who he is, doesn't really matter. We accepted that guy as the top guy in this country, a dimwit. And he's not the only one. There's plenty of other dimwits that are propped up in these high positions. This is part of the social programming that plays literally verbatim into the animal farm idea. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. And that's just it. It doesn't matter whether he's brilliant or average right. or below average. It doesn't matter right. because he still was the president of the United States for eight years, the highest office in the land of our country. So it is what it is, man. They're still going to program you and say, hey, this guy is is considered the leader of the free world. 
That's right. The most power from the point of view of most people who would ever see him in their minds, he would be the most powerful man in the world, though we know that's nonsense. The point is, that's the perception. And, you know, belief and perception are magic. You know, it's no different than going to Las Vegas and seeing the white fl tiger fly across the stage. Well, did a white tiger really just fly across the stage? No, you were fooled into thinking that's the way it appears. That's magic. And in essence, that is true magic. So it's no different than when you put a dimwit in an important position or the highest position in the world, in this case, we're told, um, and people accept that. You know, you're not looking for your best and your brightest anymore. You know, what was the phrase that went along with Bush? I'd like to have a beer with him. You want to talk about lowering the mindset of Lord knows how many people. I mean, it was genius. Let's just leave it at that. It was genius. Absolutely. So Skull and Bones is viewed as the elite of the elite among all of these fraternal organizations at Yale. The only other one that can come close to claiming near equal influence on American affairs in the last 160 years is Scroll in Key, which was founded in 1842, which makes it the second oldest. There's also a third society at Yale that is considered part of the big three of the secret Yale societies, and that one was established 50 years after Skull and Bones. At first, it was called the Third Society. Very clever and interesting <laughs> thinking there. But five yeah. years later, it was renamed to Wolf's Head. So the, the oldest there is, is the highest. You know, Scroll and Key listed as the oldest is also listed as the highest valued little club there on campus at $10.7 which I suspect are nonsense numbers. But anyhow, those are the publicly available numbers. Go ahead. Keep on. Keep on keeping on. Well, Scroll and Key seems to do a lot more than Skull and Bones. Skull and Bones keeps more to itself, or Scroll and Key is seen doing a lot of more uh, public work with Yale University and, and the uh, and the public in general. So that could be why more money is exchanging hands, but who knows? I don't know, man. They run an interference. It's a hard thing to know. Even even as you go through the information on these places, you're really kind of biting your tongue the whole time, just wondering, you know, how much value is to any of this public information. It's a hard thing to know. But anyhow, go ahead. So the number tapped for all of these senior secret societies is always 15. And I don't know what the significance of that is, and maybe you do, but that is what always happens. In the junior year, they're, they're tapping 15 students to be the new group for their senior year? Well, the average person would just use simple numerology to point out that it reduces to six. I don't know if that's valid here. It could simply be um, that the size of the organization dictates how many people they want to tap, but it could also create a hierarchy. Suppose you have 25 very rich, powerful families, and yet it's known that only 15 are going to get tapped. You create that scarcity thing, uh, which is so important in royal life. You know, the idea of ladies in waiting and all this other nonsense where there's only so many slots open, this kind of thing. But that's just a guess on my part. Right. And maybe they feel that they only need that many each year of the best and the brightest from whatever their point of view is on that. And uh, to get in is considered an absolute honor. So if you made it, it, it instills in the student this sense of accomplishment right from the get-go. Well, I would imagine once you get into an organization like that, you know, num money's never going to be a problem. But on the flip side of that, you know, I I'm big on freedom. I'm big on doing whatever the hell I want, whenever the hell I want. And I have no idea what it would mean to be an actual member of a group like this. Have you surrendered your freedom? I mean, do you have to go out and play the roles that are required? I suspect probably you do. Um, you know, it it's no different than, than a supposed royal court back in the day before electronic anything 
something where they're controlling the message. And if you can imagine the king or the queen saying, okay, all you serfs out there, we're going to go to war with the country next door for this, that, or the other reason, what you begin to realize is it's all messaging and that messaging to get the messaging out, all these roles are required. There are all number of people within the royal court that would have to play a role in painting the grand illusion that allows all these things to be facilitated. So there it is. It's a hard thing to know, but I suspect that um, while you never have to worry about money, um, you're not going to have the freedom that people like me have. What I noticed from looking into this is that Skull and Bones is very much like Freemasonry, especially the higher end of Freemasonry, where there is an integration and they all look out for each other. And, and that that's what it is. You know, you, you're part of the club and, and you do look out for each other and you do things for each other throughout your entire life. Right. I think that's what, you know, the kind of thing they were making fun of in the Simpsons episode where they mocked Freemasonry. But I would amend what I just said. You know, you're also looking at a group of people who probably don't need passports. Um, They jump on private jets, that kind of thing. That is a modicum of freedom. But the point I would make is you're being trained for a role, you know, on the world stage. And so I would imagine that you're expected to to do many, many things. Um, You know, we've already talked about Bush. Look what he had to do. What was that, eight years he stood in as either a great actor or an idiot, one of the two? Um, Hard to know, man. Well, let's let's not uh, even joke around here. If you have a substantial amount of wealth, and I don't know what line you would draw to say if you have this much, but if you have a substantial amount of wealth, you pretty much have the freedom you want as far as being able to go where you want and do what you want without being stopped. Well, you also have to maintain the status quo. You know, it is really no different than uh, the kings or queens of yore if there was such a time ordering the serfs off to war. You see, you have to be able to say you guys are going to do this and have them do it. All these people are above the law, basically. Um, So to keep that intact, they have to do all these things. I mean, look what we see in the news in any given day, all the false news, even the stupid pizza thing I've been mentioning where they're lowering the language, using the word bestest. And, you know, it's, it's happening across all these fast food places. It's a concerted effort to keep control over the people at a lower level. You see, these people do have freedoms we don't have. They can travel all over the world. They can stay in the most expensive hotel. But They also have to maintain the status quo, and that requires that all these tables are set and all these stages are created and all this messaging is constantly going out. So, I mean, I would suggest there is a trade-off. When I look at it, um, I wouldn't be willing to participate. I value my freedom above all things, and I would not be willing to trade being rich for having to do all these nonsensical things so that someone could maintain power. But that's just me. Go ahead, man. Well, I have no doubt that they have to play the game. Now, as far as this dumbing down thing that these people do not participate in, let's just look at some of the things that have been integrated into culture already. For instance, people will say the word ask as axe now. Right. You know, A-X-E instead of A-S-K. Or just the way a lot of people will intentionally spell things wrong to go along with what's cool accented pronunciation like you know instead of saying the they'll say duh da or you right. know and all these things that's deliberate folks they're coming after you you would never see these people that the, these ivy league people would never partake in this well there's a there's a reason jason you see what you're pointing out here is couched in culture it shows the aspect of culture that is social programming but what people may not be catching on to is every word has a meaning the fact that a word has a meaning means that it has an etymology 
there are roots to that word. When you take the word teeth and make it teeth or the word the and make it duh, you're beginning to lose the breadcrumb trail that you would have had if you ever want to understand what language is about. If you want to know the etymology, you have to know the proper usage of the word. If you want to know where that word came from, you have to be able to track it back. And so in essence, by changing words through culture this way, you're adding another place you would have to track back through to get back to what a word means. And let me tell you something, words have meaning. And if we all took the time to look carefully at language, we would all be a lot better off because so much is being told us just on the face of what's being said that we've been taught by culture and school and other things to not catch. Um, it's unfortunate, but you know, I wanted to point that out. This is not just about whether you say a word right or not. It's about the value of a word, what a word can mean and what you can derive from a begin to change words and malform them and turn them into something else, that's just another part of a maze someone would have to go through to get back to what it originally meant. So anyhow, there's that. And let's not also forget by doing this, they are drawing a definitive line between us and them. I mean, that's right. no one who speaks with this slang that they've integrated is going to get a high-end CEO job, or, for instance, or something like that, you know? I mean, despite what they dress like and look like, they couldn't even speak and communicate in a way that would be acceptable to higher society. And that's not on purpose. Well, it's the idea of the old, you know, what was those movies they used to make in the golden age of, of Hollywood where there's a Cockney girl and, you know, the bet from the lords is that they can teach this Cockney girl to fit into higher society. It's exactly what you're pointing out. Um, my wife and I have had this conversation about the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. We've laughed that when you're on a beach in California, you really don't know most of the time whether you're standing next to a trash collector or a CEO. But here on the East Coast, you damn well know. You damn well know. There's all these tells from dress to mannerism to speech to everything. Um, the kind of class society here on the East Coast is much more visible than it is in places like California or Hawaii. But anyhow, I'm kind of digressing here. Go ahead, man. So the selection procedure for the new members of Skull and Bones has been the same since 1832. Each year, 15 potentials are chosen, as we stated. This number does not deviate. On average, about 500 to 600 members of the order would be alive and active at any one time. Roughly one quarter of these take an active role in furthering the objectives of the order. The others lose interest or perhaps even change their minds about what's actually going on. Those are considered silent dropouts. Yeah, it almost seems to me like the whole 15 thing is just a calculated way to keep the numbers, if those are even accurate, between five and 600 members. And again, when you have a real insider group of people like this, the people at the top are going to have ironclad controls. You know, you can't have a person in one of these positions go off the handle and do things that they're not supposed to do. You just can't have it. So I would imagine that this is all just part of the ironclad maintaining membership at a certain level and, and the whole game that's got to be played. So looking at available biographical data on the early Skull and Bones member, members, the, the money required to sustain the Secret Order's campus affairs and its broader role in placing its members into key positions of influence upon their graduation from Yale seemed to derive, as we were discussing, from the opium trade in the Far East. 
and that trade was set up by the British East India Company and was flourishing by the time the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783 that ended the American War of Independence. Now, the East India Company during this period was controlled by the Bering Brothers Bank. Toward the closing decades of the 17th century, the British House of Rothschild, where we heard that name before, would supplant the Bering Brothers as the controlling financial interests in the China opium trade. Through the sponsorship of the Barings and also the Rothschilds, a number of New England families, some of whom had sided with Great Britain during the American Revolution, were brought into the opium trade as junior partners. These merchant families ran fleets of clipper ships and became, in many cases, fabulously wealthy as a result of their association and business dealings with the British East India Company. Now, here's a bunch of names of key New England merchant families that some of which are going to be very familiar to a lot of people. Cabot, Coolidge, Forbes, Higginson, Sturgis, Lodge, Lowell, Perkins, and Russell. Now, that this is kind of the original line. These New England merchant families founded the United Fruit Company and the Bank of Boston. And these original families have so heavily intermarried and, and basically got in bed with each other that they are like a, an intertwined power network all to their own. Right. You know, for the average person listening that's never really been to New England where I live now, having left San Diego for a while, um, it is really a unique place. And there is no getting away from the maritime, the seafaring kind of foundational roots of this place um, to the point where you'll be cruising through to go shopping or something and you'll always see the pineapple sign. Um, the pineapple, you can look it up online, directly associated with um, you know something only the seafarers could bring with them because pineapples didn't grow here. And it, there's, a, there's a whole thing behind the pineapple. But to this day, even on you know just the next door neighbor's house, there will be a little painting of a pineapple. And that has its direct roots in the seafaring trade. There's no getting away from what you're being told in this bullet point. You know, think of the idea of legalizing marijuana or the supposed opiate addiction problem in this country, which is coming through drug companies. Basically, what you're looking at here is powerful people taking over a drug trade, making it legal for them, illegal for everyone else, whacking out an entire country on opium and becoming filthy rich because of it. At the same time, they are legislating for everyone else a different set of rules. So you can kind of see how the pirates are coming to bear here. And that's exactly what these people are. They are pirates. Go ahead, Jason. Sure. And that is the whole point why they use the Skull and Bones logo. That's they, right. They are above the law. And that's they're, they're telling you that we are above the law. We can do what we want. We will do as we want. Well, I would point out anyone who wants to go back and look at those ridiculous Disney movies with Johnny Depp, um, what do you think is being portrayed there? They're showing you the British crown as one of the maritime forces, and they're glorifying the pirates on the other side. If you pay close attention to the narrative in those movies, what you're looking at is an echoing of the piracy we are talking about in this episode. That's all there is to it. Okay, so going back to explain all of the things that we've just gone through in more detail, there are three aspects that could be said to have converged on Yale at the beginning of all this, and that would be espionage or the intelligence community, drug smuggling, which we've been discussing, and the international drug trade itself as a whole, because this has been integrated into everything for a very long time, and of course, secret societies. So we're going to start with explaining who 
Elihu Yale was. Go ahead. Go go ahead. I was going to make a reference to the movie The Godfather that really shows how these kind of organizations use drugs on everyone else, considering everyone else to be lower. Um, anyone who's interested can go look at the original Godfather movie where they're pushing drugs into the black community. Listen to how those people are referencing the black community um, and, and using the drugs, because that's basically what's going on here at a much higher level. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Well, The Godfather character in there didn't like the drug thing and and had to accept the fact that this is this was the way of the future this was happening and he finally said put it in the black communities they're animals anyway and that's exactly what did happen that's that's just a kind of a, a on-screen persona version of the reality of it well it was it was all the way the way i walked away from because i watched that a couple times that one little portion i went back and looked it up just to watch that portion i think the idea behind it is is if we make these drugs available and you fall for it and you take these drugs, you've identified yourself as lower than us and that we're going to call you an animal. This plays into the alchemical idea in a way where an individual is responsible. Either you're going to be a higher minded individual or a lower minded individual. These people knew from probably hundreds of years ago that drugs would lower individuals. It would cause addiction. It would cause all these things which would prevent that segment of society from becoming a higher-minded society, which is exactly the pizza commercial on spades. Um, the lowering of language is, is a similar idea in a lesser vein. But anyhow, I don't want to track off too far. Go ahead and get into what, how, whatever the hell this guy's name is. Elihu Yale? Elihu Yale. He was born near Boston on April 5th, 1648. He was a British merchant philanthropist, slave trader, and he became president of the East India Company settlement in Fort St. George in uh, Madras, India in 1687. Now, obviously, he became very wealthy as a result of all this. After receiving a request from the collegiate school in Connecticut, he sent a donation and a gift of books, which actually would be a pretty nice gift at the time. After later bequests, Cotton Mather, who was a socially and politically influential Puritan minister in New England at the time, suggested the school be named Yale College in 1718. Cotton Mather is also known for his scientific legacy due to his hybridization experiments as well as promotion of inoculation for disease prevention. He is most frequently remembered, however, for his very vigorous support of the Salem witch trials. You know, it's too bad we don't have a place named Hell because that last guy you just mentioned, Cotton, uh, being behind inoculations, that'd be a good place for him. Um, just the other day, I was out at a Rite Aid, and there's a big sign promising seniors that they will get 30% with an immunization off their next purchase on top of the 20% they will already get from having been a member. In other words, you come in, let us immunize, immunize you, we will give you 50% off your purchases. It is such kind of the most evil thing I can imagine to be putting these things in older people simply because they can't afford to buy the things that they need in life and they need to get the 50% off. And here we're looking at the roots of it. And Cotton Mather, you know, here he is, the promotion of inoculation. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. I see giant signs everywhere here. You know, out front of, uh, there's a chain here called Albertsons. Every one I go to, there's giant signs out front. And as soon as you go in the door, 
about getting your immunizations and flu shots, blah, 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 blah. Man, they just push it and push it and push it and push it. It, it is so bad here that there's a place called Fall River, um, which at the height of the mills um, in, I don't know, maybe less than 100 years ago was a very rich place. Now it's not, but there's a big billboard sign that we drive by sometimes, and it says this, what inoculations do you need? I'm not even kidding. That's what the sign says. But anyhow, back to you. All right, so next we're going to talk about Nathan Hale. He was born in Coventry, Connecticut in 1755. He attended Yale College with his two years older brother at the age of 14. They were both members of the Lenonian Society. He graduated from Yale at 18 with first-class honors in 1773 and became a teacher. By 1775, Hale was in the Army, and shortly after, along with three other Yale graduates, Nathan Hale was part of what was called the Culper Ring. This was one of America's first intelligence operations. It was organized by Major Benjamin Talmadge uh, under orders from General George Washington in the summer of 1778 during the British occupation of New York City. Now, this would have been at the height of the Revolutionary War. Nathan Hale was the only operative to have been discovered by the British, and he was hanged in 1776. The legend, although it's not uh, historically proven, is that he spoke a very famous quote that uh, we get taught in school a lot of times, right before his execution. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Yale College, later Yale University, has always had ties with the intelligence community since the founding of this republic. Yeah, it's funny, you know, hearing the bullet point and the way you just read it, you know, everybody knows the Hale quote, I regret I only have but one life to, to give for my country. Um, everything you read about him would suggest the exact opposite about this man, that he's one of the guys that's not out there to give his life away. He's out there to pull the strings. But there it is, man. That's just my take. Now, the third person to tie into this in the early days is a man named Samuel Russell, born in 1789 in Middleton, Connecticut. He was an American entrepreneur and trader. He founded Russell and Company in 1832, which was the largest and most important American trading house in China from the years 1842 until its closing in 1891. This company was established for the purpose of acquiring opium in Turkey and smuggling it into China along with trading in Chinese silk and tea. Russell & Company merged with the Perkins of Boston Syndicate in 1830 and became the primary American opium smuggler. Many American and European fortunes were made as a result of the China opium trade, as we've been discussing. Many well-known families were tied up with all of this, many of which, as we know, still hold power to this day. Yeah, as a side note where I am, there's a big triangle where it was supposedly slavery for sugar and rum, um, the idea of using the things that, that made people drunk or high. But, you know, as I was looking at the research you did here, Jason, it began to occur to me that we really appear to be looking at the long game here. Here you're mentioning dates like 1832, where America's in China, Britain's in China, all the people associated with this kind of shipping conglomerate have places in China. Um, these are not the only countries. It almost appears to me like the shift we see now where China is going to be on the ascendant and kind of Trump, not to, to make a bad joke, what America used to be, a China is going to be the new boss in town. It almost looks like we're looking at the groundwork planning for this all the way back to here. And that's just an educated guess. But if it's right, can you imagine? Talk about the long game, man. Well, we always hear that these elite people 
have a very long game. And it would be easy really to do that if indeed you had all these little micro-secret societies passing that from one to the next as the years go by. You can see how they would have set this up. And if you're a young, impressionable fellow being brought into one of these organizations and you're being given this long-term plan that you get to be a part of, man, that's going to play into your ego big time. Yeah, I agree. But I would ask, you know, someone alive in the 1800s being told that, you know, it's going to be 20 something before we really start to do all the things we're laying the groundwork for. Why would they be willing to spend their whole life? Um, And this plays back to the alchemical idea that I've been going at for so long. It appears that the top people in this world live a lot longer than everyone else. How much longer, I can't tell. Um, In the Bible, we see, you know, Methuselah being listed as the longest person. What's that, 996 years or 99 years? I've forgotten. Almost a thousand years from Methuselah encoded into the Bible. Um, In popular music, you know, we could live for a thousand years, and I'll make wine from your tears, again, echoing the biblical idea. We see these ideas echoed all over the place, but what's the real truth here? Um, Is it possible that some of these people are living long enough that they could have been alive in the 1800s to realize what's going on now. For the average year, that would seem a million miles away. But I'll tell you what, the more I look into alchemy, the more I begin to wonder what the possible lifespan of a human being is. And if it's possible that the richest and most powerful among us got a hold of these ideas, Lord only knows. And the real problem here is it it begins to sound a bit insane, but there's no getting away from what you find when you begin to look. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the hour, Jason. Do you want to add anything before we bring this to a close and, and prep up for hour two? Well, Of course, in hour two, we're going to go over the rest of the history here and see how it all ties into what's going on today. But without trying to sound like a commercial, I hope folks realize that what we're doing here takes a lot of effort. And with the constant attacks on everything we're trying to do, it hurts us. It hurts us in a a big way. So signing up for for the show basically helps us to continue doing this work because obviously if it got so bad to the point that we couldn't afford to do it anymore, then it's going to be gone. So that's pretty much it. Think about it. I mean, it's not very much. It's it's more of a cumulative effort. If enough people subscribe, it keeps everything going. And man, we want to keep doing this. Yeah, you know, it, it almost in my mind, Jason, reflects the reality of the time we live in. If enough people see value and are interested, they'll go support this and it will go on. If we reach a point where enough people don't see value, then it won't work anymore. Unfortunately, as we pointed out in the opening of this show, we're getting hit from every which direction. And it's from behind the scenes. It's not even like, you know, well, we put a strike on you, a publicly visible thing. It's this other thing going on that's really beginning to rear its head. And it's ironic that it, it that it's hit so hard this last week on the tail of our free speech episode that basically attributed the control of free speech, excuse me, to big corporations like Google. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the first hour. We've got so much to cover, and we're even going to begin to list all the people who are associated with these secret societies that hold important positions in our life. And that sets aside all the stuff to do with the maritime law, the East India Company, and all the things that set the stage for the very existence we all live now. Um, So there it is, man. That brings the first hour to a close of Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 67 to a close and i hope to see at least some of you over at crow triple seven radio signed up as members for the second hour there it is man cheers 